We're studying the book of Nehemiah, and so if you have a Bible or however you access that online, your computer or a tablet or your phone or whatever, uh, the book of Nehemiah is focusing primarily in, in the context in which we're studying on the year 444 B.C. over the next 52 days. It is the account of Nehemiah who uh, will become governor of the province of Yehud or Judea. Uh, the Jews are returning from their exile. You might remember that God had said to them, if you do not walk in loving obedience with me, if you worship other idols, if you worship other gods, I will send you into exile, which he did. The end of that exile, it was 70 years. Uh, the Jews have come back in three waves. First with uh, uh, Zerubbabel, uh, Shesbazar, then Ezra, and then Nehemiah brought a small group uh, back with him. The province of Judea is not an independent province. It's part of the Persian Empire. They do not have their own king. There's no Davidic monarchy. That will not be restored until Jesus comes back a second time. They're under the rule of the Persian Empire. Nehemiah will assume the leadership of this province. At this point, he's not yet that leader. His task is a simple task, to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Uh, the temple has been rebuilt. That had been done, um, well, it started in 539 B.C. and was done 15 years later. Uh, the uh, temple worship has been restored. Uh, the priesthood has been restored. Sacrifices have been restored. But the city of Jerusalem is very vulnerable. As I think you probably know just from your basic understanding of history, in the ancient world, every city had a wall around it for defense, protection. So with no wall, Jerusalem is very vulnerable. And it's in a, like today, <laughs> in 2020, Jerusalem is in a very bad neighborhood. They've got a lot of enemies to the north, to the east, to the west, to the south. And so the, the enemies are, are committed to one thing. They do not want this wall rebuilt. And so the story so far as we've been charting it is all the opposition that Nehemiah is facing. In chapter 4, which is where we are now, I'm going to jump in and quickly go to verse 10. But in chapter 4, you see three major oppositions up to the fourth one, which we're going to look at in just a minute. The enemies of, of, uh, of the Jewish people at this time, Sanballat, who is the governor of Samaria, is mocking them and making fun of them. Then they try everything they can to try to uh, organize a conspiracy against them, to create fear and terror. And so at the point where we are now in verse 10, the discouragement is setting in. Now just think about this, because the, the, the thing I love about Nehemiah, it's recording an historical event. This is very applicational for you and me today. I have taught Nehemiah a little bit of what we're doing with this as a tremendous book about leadership. How does a leader deal with people who need to continue to be encouraged, to continue to finish the task, can we keep their mission in front of them, this is what we're doing, and of course to cultivate not fear, but faith and trust. And that's Nehemiah's task, in addition to everything else he has to do. So as we move into chapter 4, verse 10, we sort of started this last time, but I want to pick up there again to finish it, is the people who are building the wall, the people who are working with Nehemiah, he's organized it, it's highly organized, everybody understands exactly what their task is supposed to be, but they are experiencing physical and spiritual and emotional exhaustion, they are experiencing fear, and they are experiencing the opposition of their family and friends. 
Yeah, Jim, uh, you recommended uh, a book by uh, what Charles Swindell. That's right. That I had to special order it. Good. The Christian bookstore didn't have it, but I got it, and it's so much about yeah. what to do about discouragement and fear, yeah. and, and it's awesome. Yeah, good. I, I, I like that, too. The book, uh, what he's referring to is uh, Swindoll's little book on this called Hand Me Another Brick. And Swindoll's approach is, it really is about leadership. And at the end of the book, he has a list of leadership principles, part of which I'm going to go over when we finish this book, uh, about 2022 or 2023, <laughs> at the rate we're going. That's supposed to be a joke. Two of you got it. I'm glad at least two of you are with me. So verse 10 focuses on, now try again to put yourself in their place. They are trying to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem to secure the city. Enemies are all around them. And so in Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble by ourselves. We will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies have said, they will not know or see till we come among them, kill them, and stop the work. First two key areas that have to be dealt with. Number one, the work's too hard. There's too much rubble to rebuild the wall. Now remember, for those of you that kind of need the historical reminder, Nebuchadnezzar's armies in 586 B.C. had destroyed Jerusalem, had burned the temple. So the city remained in rubble up until this point, 444 B.C. So you have this, just like anything you can think of in your life, an enormous task. It's too hard for us to do. Second, as we saw in in verse 11, our enemies are trying to create fear and terror among us. You'll never finish it. We'll kill you. We'll stop the work. Would you want to work in that kind of environment? Your rhetorical answer to that rhetorical question is no, but you didn't get it. Number three, verse 12. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, said to us ten times, said to us ten times, over and over and over they're saying, you must return to us. Now, who are these people? Remember, I give you a map in your packet But Jerusalem is only one community in Yehud, the province of Judah, Judea and the Roman Empire. This is not highly popular. It's probably about 50,000 people in the province. It's not a huge province. It's not highly populated. So the people that are coming to them are their family members, their friends, and are saying, please come home. This is too hard. Come home. I've got a pizza in the oven, peanut butter ice cream in the freezer, and I have the football game on. Come home. Those last three sentences I made up. Maybe you didn't catch that. So, I mean, it's, it's, it it's makes sense. It's reasonable. The work is too hard. We have enemies that are about to destroy us. And our friends and relatives are saying, come home. It's too difficult. So if you're Nehemiah, and you're the leader, and God has tasked you to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, to provide security for the city, for the temple. This is God's city. Jerusalem is the apple of his eye, the book of Psalms says. Jerusalem is the key city in God's redemptive program and his entire program for history. 
And here's Nehemiah supposed to rebuild the wall. What does he do? Verse 13. He has a two-part strategy. Protect the city. Stimulate faith and trust in God. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans with swords, spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and officials and the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your, ho- and your homes. Two-part strategy. Work hard. Provide the guards and the protection and the security that we can provide. Give everybody swords and bows and arrows. But remember the Lord. This is the Lord's work. Remember the Lord. And what does he remind them about the Lord? Who is great and awesome. Did they... Have any evidence that God was great and awesome? Mm-hmm. When Nehemiah said that to a group of Jewish people in 444 BC, what would they pull up from the historical memory to remind them that what Nehemiah just said to us, remember the Lord who is great and awesome, what would they pull up from their historical memory? The exodus from Egypt, which is the liberating moment, that's one of them, the liberating moment for their history. That's when they became a nation. God declared them to be a nation as they're leaving Israel, uh, leaving Egypt. And then those ten plagues which had preceded their exodus, where God demonstrated his awesome power when he made war on the Egyptian worldview. Those ten plagues dismantled the entire worldview of ancient Egypt. It showed it to be an absolute, absolute bankrupt worldview. And then God parted the Red Sea. And then God took them down to Mount Sinai and gave them their constitution, the law. And then God took the. What I'm trying to say to you is they had in their historical memory validation that our God is great and awesome. Anything else? What year was this, Jim? Oh. You mean what, ne- what Nehemiah, what yeah, we're talking about? I mean, how long had it been since the Exodus? A thousand years. A thousand, a thousand years. years. 1446 have, was the Exodus. This is 444 B.C. They have scrolls and things. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I mean, the law and the Torah, that was something that was a part reading it. That uh, was a part of their worship. That was a part of everything they did, absolutely. And you could also cite God as creator. In Genesis 1 and 2. Can you talk about one problem would be their near term memory? For a thousand years, I can't probably remember last week. So yeah. That's a big problem. That is true, but as they read the law, the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, and as they read their histories, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, and as they read their prophets, because almost all of the prophets, major prophets and minor prophets, were all dealing with the time of the monarchy. What is, the, what is God's favorite historical reminder as you read, for example, the Psalms of the prophets? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. God keeps saying that over and over. Why does he do that? For the same reason you need to have things repeated. 
You have to keep things repeated, repeated, and repeated to remind yourself of who he is. The most important thing to do with children is keep teaching the same truth over and over and over and over again. I know for your kids, all you had to do is tell them one time and they were fine, right? There were no problems. Said it once, that was it. My kids weren't like that. I had to constantly remind them about the things of God, who God is, why mom and dad do this, why mom and dad don't do this. So that historic memory, God doesn't. I know you know this, but God is a God of history. God acts in history. And God wants us to remember what he did in history for our good. What's the most important historical fact you're supposed to remember? Jesus Christ died on the cross, was resurrected for you 2,000 years ago. That's the most important event in history. History is important to God. And what's happening in our culture, in our world, is history is irrelevant today to most people. Do you know, I just read, can I tell you this? I just read this. This is amazing to me because my life has been history and historical theology. Do you know the majority of millennials cannot tell you what century the Civil War was fought? Not the years, 1861 to 1865. They can't even tell you the century it was in. There's something wrong with our educational system if kids can't answer that basic. And these aren't kids. These are young adults. You all know when it was fought. Right? Yes. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. All right. When you... When you see the job is too big to do, when you have enemies all around you, when you are discouraged, and when, when, when you are at the point where even your friends and neighbors say, give it up, it's too much, what does God want you to remember? Who he is, what he's done for you in the past. Will he be faithful to you in the future? There, listen, I know you know this, but there's the three most important things to always, 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 always remember. Who is God? What has he done for you in the past? Has he been faithful? Will he be faithful to you in the future? Or is he going to abandon you? Not my God, not your God. Amen. Who he is, what has he done for you in the past? Has he been faithful? Will he be faithful to you in the future? Or is he going to abandon you? And so that's what Nehemiah is doing. As a leader, he has to keep the people focused on what God wants them to do. Remember your great and awesome God. You're going to get busy. We're going to keep building, and you're going to have a sword in one hand and a bricklaying whatever trowel in the other. But we're going to be prepared, but we're going to trust the Lord. Leaders encourage their people to do their best, always remembering that it is God who is in this with them. So what was the result? Did it work? Yes. Thank you, it did. Verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us, their plots, their conspiracy, that God had frustrated their plan, we returned to the wall, each to his work. Did Nehemiah's strategy work? Yes. They returned to their work. But look at what Nehemiah does here. There are, 
I, I like to think of this paragraph from verse 15 through verse 21 as a mixture of faith, hard work, preparedness, and wisdom. Let's look at this. There are, there are four key things I want to identify. Verse 16, from that day on, from what day on? As I got everybody back to task, doing what God wanted us to do. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction. Half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. Number three, and the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall. So you have three things going on. Number one, you have one group doing the work. You have another group providing the defense. And you have another group, the leaders. These would be the heads of the tribes and clans of Judah. Because remember, I mean, the organization, it was much of that's in the ancient world, but the organization in Israel was you have the tri- you have the families that make up clans that make up tribes. So all the leaders are standing behind and encouraging and supporting the work. So who's involved in this project? Everybody. Everybody's involved in this. And so Nehemiah has organized this. Everybody's involved. Half are doing the work. Half are providing defense. So that half are providing defense gives encouragement and stimulation to those who are doing the work. And then you have the leadership behind it. We're with you. Keep going. Writing out little notes of encouragement. Giving them a cup of Starbucks coffee in the middle of the day. Or, as I got a gift from you guys, a cup of Scooter's coffee. I'm learning to enjoy scooters. I hadn't enjoyed scooters before, but now I'm learning to enjoy scooters. I'm still weighing which one I like the best. But either one, the leaders encourage them. That is really important. What were the four things that you were going to go over? Well, I've only done three so far. The first one is divide the half. Half do the work. No, but I mean you said faith. In the next- oh, a, a, a mixture of faith, hard work, preparedness, and wisdom. Continuing, verse 17. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. And the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. That's a funny statement, isn't it? That's kind of an odd statement. What what does that mean? Why does he tell us that? Well... Just it's it's so odd because we don't have anything quite like this. But remember, you're talking about an area which is fairly large. I mean, it's not you know like the size of this room. It's it's a very large area rebuilding the whole wall, and so Nehemiah can't be everywhere. But right next to Nehemiah is the guy who would sound the alert in times of crisis to rally the people. If there is an attack, the trumpet will blow and be ready. So Nehemiah is saying, in addition to my getting everybody organized and having defense and having leadership behind, I also have, as a part of the plan, preparedness. In case there's a crisis, the guy who will sound the trumpet is standing right beside me. 
That gives confidence. Nehemiah knows what's going on. Nehemiah is in charge. And Nehemiah, if there is a crisis, is going to alert us and we'll know exactly what we're supposed to do in time of crisis. They had rehearsals. Every day before school started, they went through a drill. I'm making that up. I'm being funny. But it's, it's that kind of, you prepare, a leader prepares for crisis. And a leader prepares for crisis by when this happens, this is what we all do. And so you just see the amazing, I think it is anyway, the amazing leadership skill of Nehemiah. Motivating people, encouraging people, structuring structuring the work in such a way that everybody has a key responsibility, but always building confidence in Nehemiah as the leader, but always trusting in our great and awesome God. What, what's the application today, Jim, based on this situation that's happening with building the wall for us as Christians today? Well, I've been trying to uh, do that uh, through the study. Uh, I think whatever, you know, if it depends on the person, but if you're a boss, <laughs> I think you can draw a lot of pretty important leadership principles here. If you're a boss and responsible for tasking a whole bunch of people to do various jobs to accomplish the mission of your organization, that, I think there's some important things here. Keep the people motivated. Keep them encouraged. Make sure everybody's on the right seat of the bus, knowing what they're supposed to do, but they understand, that, assuming it's in a Christian context, that it is our great and awesome God who is going to help us accomplish this. This is his work. And we studied Colossians a couple of months ago. Do you remember in Colossians 3:22 and following? The greatest passage in the Bible on the biblical view of work. Whatever you do, you work to the glory of God. Whatever you do, you serve the Lord Christ. I'm quoting from that passage. So to me, Fred, that's part of what we can do even in 2020 as we approach our work. Whatever God is asking you to do, whether it's laying brick, building houses, running a company, heading up marketing, or in medicine, whatever it is, you're doing it to the glory of God. God has gifted you, talented you, he's given you that task. Now do it to his glory. And this is giving us, I mean, it is, it is absolutely true of almost any organization. The organization rises and falls on the leader. It really does. If the, if the leader is not doing what God wants that leader to do, that organization is not going to survive to his glory. Verse 18. I already read it. Verse 19. And I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great, widely spread. We are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. This is the practice. This is the drill. When you hear the trumpet, this is what I want you to do. Then this magnificent, marvelous statement of faith, our God will fight for us. Does that mean they don't fight? They don't take up the sword? They don't take up the spear? No. But our God will fight for us. I want to take you back, and, and some of you are not going to know enough about Israel's history to remember this, but I want to take you back earlier in the history of Israel during the monarchy period. 
And a king of Judah by the name of Jehoshaphat is ruling. And he's entered into a coalition, which was not a wise move on his part, but he entered into a coalition with King Ahab of the northern kingdom. And they're fighting a battle against Ben-Hadad, who's a Syrian general. It's kind of a messy thing. Do you remember that critical passage in 2 Kings? God says to Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, here's what I want you to do. But the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord. King Jehoshaphat, you need to remember this. The battle is the Lord's. I've been in, I'm not a therapist by any stretch, believe me. But I have done and still do a little bit of pastoral counseling, helping people think through certain things or whatever they're dealing with. But I can't tell you how many times if it's a, if it's a young couple struggling with some marital issues as they're trying to get their marriage going, if if it's a a mom and a dad dealing with a rebellious teenager, they're the kind of things I kind of deal with. I don't deal with depression issues, but you know it's important just to remind them of those words. The battle is the Lord's. Your rebellious teenager. There's a lot you are to do. There's a lot of responsibility. But remember, the battle is the Lord. It is the Lord who will change the heart of your teenager. You can't force them to do that. You can't manipulate them into doing that. The battle's the Lord's. That takes, correct me if I'm wrong, but that takes a lot of faith. It takes a lot of trust. Because I don't know how you guys are. But I see a problem. I want to solve it immediately. It's too tomorrow's too late to solve it. I want to solve it immediately, and then you know, you start doing things. That, no, no, no. Step one. Step one. Step one is take this to the Lord. And it is the, and especially when you're dealing with people, it is the Lord who changes people's hearts. Nehemiah is saying here, now look, if a crisis occurs and you hear the trumpet, rally to the point. Here's what I want you to do. But while you're rallying and when you're getting ready to defend the city, and everything, remember this proposition. Our God will fight for us. Is that true in your life? Is that true in the struggles you might have? Is that true in the mountains yes. you're facing? Is that true in the difficulties you're facing? Or does this not apply to you and me? Our God will fight for us. That doesn't apply to you and me, Right. No, it does apply to you and me. This is in the context of a military crisis, presumably. But any crisis in life, this is a propositional truth claim statement that is validated over and over and over again in your life, in my life, and in biblical history. Our God will fight for us. Jesus said, before he went back to the Father, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus said in another passage, I will be with you until the end. Is that a promise you can hang on to? Of course it is. So Nehemiah is reminding the people of something they've been taught generation after generation after generation. Our God will fight for us. They have a whole history as a nation which proves that. Now they're in a crisis. They're rebuilding the wall. Has God forgotten them? Absolutely not. And so that proposition, our God will fight for us. My, that is true today as it was in 446 B.C. 
And Nehemiah is trying to get these people to rebuild the wall. Got it? All right, shall we? Verse 21. Have any questions? I'm doing more preaching than I am teaching today, but that's all right. Yes, Jim. There are some times in our personal circumstances where things don't go the way we want them to go. Oh, and yeah. So to say that God fights for us, you look at it and say, well, where was he in this circumstance? <coughs> in my personal experience, it's difficult to look at the instant where things went bad without looking at it in the context of time and see how God uses something that seems like a reversal at one point to accomplish something that he would have mm. probably would have I probably would have never done in my life had it been mm. Yes, I mean, Jim, what Jim is bringing up here is, is appropriate and, and is, is, is absolutely true. Um, sometimes God fighting for us, his fight for us is not the way we would like him to fight for us. But by faith, we know that he is fighting. Can I go down a bunny trail from Jim's really, really, really good and appropriate comment? We ought to, maybe we'll do this after we're done with Nehemiah. We'll just do a couple psalms together. But there are 150 psalms in the Psalter. That was the hymn book of ancient Israel. But so many of the psalms, it's it's approximately 40% of the psalms, start with the psalmist hurling accusations at God. I mean that. Where are you, O God? I've been praying to you for six months and there's no answer. The heavens are like brass. My things starting to be bouncing off. Where are you? And the silence of God in the midst of difficulties is what the psalmist is lamenting. They're called lament psalms. And yet every one of those lament psalms, as the psalmist goes through and hurls his accusations at God, where are you? You have abandoned me. It doesn't, it doesn't seem like you're with me. And every single time, do you know what the psalmist does? He reviews God's faithfulness to him in the past. But when, fill in the blank, you were with me. When this, you were with me. And it ends up worshiping the Lord. That's why God is a God of history. And I'm not, this is not easy because I know a little bit of some of the things that happened in Jim's life and all of you can talk about things in your life. Sometimes God's silence is deafening. Because it hurts us when he's silent. You promised this. And then we start, and then God does this. He just reminds us. As we read scripture, as we talk with one another, as we pray, God reminds us. I've been faithful, haven't I? In the past I've been faithful. I will not abandon you. Amen. And then, and I know this has happened in a lot of your lives you can look back on one of those times when God's silence was deafening and almost hurt. or It's not working out the way it, it seems it should, God. You look back and you say, oh my, oh my, oh my, I see what God was doing. I see how God has brought out of this very difficult time something that's very significant, very important in my life. It's transformation. That's, that's how we walk by faith. I'm telling you, and those moments of silence are really hard. 
And there, I am. I have been through those. I know, and some of the guys I've worked with over the years, those times are they're hurtful times, and they have they have thoughts about God and His goodness, but they come through that, and their faith is stronger. They're much. They're they're much. They're much deeply, much more deeply committed to the Lord, because He's brought them through something very difficult. Um. Well, anyway, there's so much to say on that. Jim, thank you for bringing that up. I was just thinking about our prayers. <clears throat> Sometimes we feel like perhaps, and it's, I do, that they have to be kind of formal rather than just honest and sharing our hearts. Um, either praise or laments or sorrow with the Lord. And how do you think God... <coughs> looks at that based upon this book that we study. Well, we talked about that twice so far in our in our study of Nehemiah. Nehemiah shoots these straight hour prayers to God. He's going into the court of Xerxes and he shoots a prayer to God. <laughs> he didn't get on his knees, he didn't say, Give me about a half hour, you know, it just quickly sang something to the Lord. I've given you this definition before. I'll share it with you again. I don't agree with all of her theology, but Rosalind Rinker in her little book on prayer is a great definition of prayer. It's a conversation between two people who love one another. I really like that. Because we are encouraged in the Bible to talk to God at all times. Formal time of prayer, absolutely. Have a prayer list, absolutely. But there's also time. I think God wants us, I hope you don't disagree with this, God wants us to be talking to him all the time Amen. about things. I mean, just all the time. You're just talking with God. You're sharing something with you, with him. You're, you're exclaiming, oh, boy, that is beautiful. I remember this summer. I may have told you this. Um, oh, what are they called? My wife grew certain flowers that she, I, I'm not Irish, what were they called? Zinnias, zinnias, that's what they are. Do you know what a zinnia flower is? I didn't know what a zinnia is until my wife planted them. Tiny little seeds, you can hardly even see them. And you plant them in the ground, she plants them, packs all the stuff around. This year, our zinnias were this high. Wow. Unbelievable. Now she feeds them about every third day. But, I mean, they're just enormous flowers like that. I remember looking at those zinnias about the third week of August, just standing there. I said, Lord, I can't believe that you can create something so beautiful. I mean, intricate, little tiny things shooting out of each. I mean, they're incredibly complex little flowers. And there were probably 40 of them in this one little bed. And in the backyard, there's 50 of them. You know, and I'm telling you, do you know what that's like to cut them down, get rid of them in, in October? It took, me, it took me 95 minutes to clean them up. I charted it because I said, Peggy said, it's time to cut them down. They're all frosted, hit them. So I said, okay, sweetie, I'll do it. So I filled three recycle bags with it. But I can't wait for next summer again. Those zinnias, you look at that and you say, Lord, that is beautiful. I'm amazed that you can create something so beautiful. God wants us to talk to him all the time about things. Even when we're upset, even when we're frustrated, even when we're angry. Verse 1 of chapter 5. A whole new set of challenges comes before Nehemiah. 
a whole new set of challenges that could destroy the unity and purpose of the people. There was exploitation and oppression going on within Judah. The rich were taking advantage of the poor. And so Nehemiah is a leader. He's got to deal with this. So verse 1, Now there arose a great outcry of the people. By the way, that phrase, great outcry, is the same phrase that is used in the opening chapters of the book of Exodus when the children of Israel are crying out to God in slavery. It's the same Hebrew term. So we are to think about that in the same way. As Israel was being oppressed and exploited by the Egyptians in 430 years of slavery, here the people in Judah, a great outcry of the people and their wives against the Jewish against their Jewish brothers. And there are four major things that Nehemiah is hearing. Four major outcries that Nehemiah is hearing. Verse 2, outcry number 1. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters, we are many. Let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. So the first outcry is, we don't have enough to eat. There isn't enough food for us. We have children, sons and daughters. We have families. There isn't enough grain. Number two, there were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. So there isn't enough food to eat. How are they getting the money to buy the food? They're mortgaging their homes, their land, their vineyards. Now Deuteronomy chapter 15 and Deuteronomy chapter 23 make two propositions clear about ancient Israel. Number one, Deuteronomy 15, exploitation of people in difficult circumstances is prohibited. Second, Deuteronomy 23, you are not to loan out money to your brothers and sisters with interest. Boy, that flies in the face of First National Bank, doesn't it? Can you imagine Bruce Lawrence hearing that rule? Don't charge interest in any loan. This bank building would close tomorrow. Now, that is, it's a very specific context. But Jewish brothers and sisters, you loan them money, but you don't charge interest. What was happening in the province of Yehud was Jewish people were loaning money to other Jewish people and charging exorbitant rates of interest. Does that make sense? That's what's going on here. What kind of situation? It's extremely difficult. They don't have enough food. They're under foreign occupation, and they have enemies to the north and the east and the south. A very, and so you have a group of people loaning out money and charging exorbitant rates of interest. Just, and these are Jewish leaders. These are Jewish leaders of First National in Judea in 446 B.C., not 2020. They don't do those things. Verse 4. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. 
Oh, my. So the third outcry is we not only are borrowing money to feed our families, we're borrowing money to pay the taxes to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Artaxerxes, king of Persia, collected $100 million a year in taxes. Now, not just from Judah, but from all of the 127 provinces of the Persian Empire. The tax rate from the king of Persia was exorbitant. So, you see the situation? They don't have enough food. Second, Jewish people... There aren't formal banks or anything like this. But Jewish people are loaning money out to other Jewish people at exorbitant rates of interest so they can get enough money to buy food and to pay taxes to the king of Persia. Now, man, it's a really difficult situation. There's one more. Verse 5, now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers and our children as their children, yet we're forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for the men have our fields and our vineyards. This is a practice that is unheard of today. But if you can't pay your debts, we take your children, and they work off your debt. It's called slavery. Now, it's temporary. This is not this isn't like chattel racial slavery in the pre-Civil War South in the United States. It's not the same thing. But this is the temporary. due to debt. So you have not only they don't have enough of food to eat, they don't have enough money to buy food, so they're borrowing at exorbitant rates of interest. Plus they have the tax rates they have to pay to the king of Persia. They're borrowing to pay that. And the fourth situation is they are so stretched for finances they can't pay any of their debts, so their children are being enslaved. I don't know about you, but that's a horrible situation. And Nehemiah is now the leader. What's he going to do? What's he going to do about this? Because in the midst of everything that we've been reading so far in the book, you have these internal issues that if anything could defeat the mission, it's the discouragement and 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 horrific economic situation of the people. They're an occupied province, and in addition, you have their brothers and sisters who are Jewish leaders charging exorbitant rates of interest. What are you going to do? So how does Nehemiah handle it? Any questions about the situation? So your thought paper for next week is define the situation and explain how Nehemiah settles it. Thousand now, five hundred words or less. <laughs> I still love to pretend that I can do that. It's fun, but it's falling on ears that are totally, totally not in sync. You couldn't care less what I say. Verse six. What are the first four words? I was very angry. I read from the ESV translation. I was very angry. He's the leader. He responds with righteous indignation, anger. When I heard their outcry and their words, I took counsel with myself. That's how the ESV translates that. What does that mean? He questioned himself. He questioned himself. 
thought it over, he's pondering the situation. He doesn't tell us this here. He really doesn't. I took counsel with myself. The image of that language, the, the picture of that language, the mind picture of that language is Nehemiah got alone. He took out a piece of paper and he listed these issues. He itemized them out. Now I'm going to ask you something that requires an inference we're drawing. Do you think he prayed? think he talked to the Lord about this? I, I'm envisioning something like this. You itemize it out. Here are the issues. Lord, what do I do with this? How, how, how do I handle something like this? These people are in a situation of oppression and exploitation. Those who have money are taking advantage of them even to the extent that their children have now become slaves or indentured servants to work off the debt. What a horrible situation. This is going to destroy the mission. I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, so the nobles and officials, they're kind of broad terms, but we're assuming these are the people of some means who were loaning out this money exorbitant rates of interest. And so he gathers them together. I said, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. And I held a great assembly against them. And I held a great assembly against them. What does that mean? Yeah, well, (laughs) I don't know. That's not the answer I wanted, but that's okay. What did you mean by that? Who might have been involved in this meeting? All the nobles and officers. And, and probably not every single Jewish person. That would have been too large of a group. But maybe the heads of the tribes and the clans and the families. The ones that were... Being yeah, so this is like everybody... Okay, we're going to settle this as a group. We're in this together. And so you nobles and officials who are taking... We're going to handle all this together. So I'm getting everybody together. And I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. Do you, do you see how many times in that sentence Nehemiah uses sold or sell? You see that? Verse, again, let me read verse 8. And I said to them, he brought them together in the assembly. We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nation. Sold to the nation. What's that referring to? They're exile. When they were in exile in Babylon and under the Persians. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. The Jewish people were redeemed people. Now, because of the situation and you're taking advantage, you are selling them into a new form of slavery. So he's using these key incendiary, hurtful words. You are selling redeemed people into a new form of slavery. Now remember, this this isn't privately, we sit them down one-on-one. There's a whole group. Face, 
the reality of what you really are doing. You're selling redeemed people into a new form of slavery. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending the money. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Nehemiah is saying, because Nehemiah was a man of some means. His family was before the exile. He is coming back from the exile. What is he saying? Nehemiah and his brothers are loaning out, but no interest. I want to repeat that. Nehemiah is loaning out money, but he's not charging interest. What is a leader supposed to do? Lead by example. Be the servant model leader. Nehemiah is doing that. Here's what you should be doing. Here's what my family's doing. Here's what you should be doing. Leaders lead by example. You don't always just tell people what to do. You show people what to do. Here again, you see this remarkable assertiveness of Nehemiah as a leader. And he concludes, verse 11, Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. What is he declaring? A general amnesty plus restitution. Whoa. I mean, did you see what he's doing? He got him together as general assembly, Reviewed with them the terribly difficult situation they've created. I am doing the exact opposite. I'm lending out money, but I'm not charging interest. So therefore, I am ordering you a general amnesty. Return everything that you've taken, plus interest, plus restitution. That's what the Old Testament law said they were supposed to do. That's what Deuteronomy 23 said they're supposed to do. So Nehemiah, as the leader, modeled what they're supposed to do and now says to them, general amnesty plus restitution. Then verse 12, we will restore this. Then they said, who's the they? The people in general assembly. We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do this as they promised. The priests are the witnesses. The priests are the witnesses to the oath these guys just took. So who's the witness? Who signed on the dotted line? I just witnessed what they said. The priest. Verse 13. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise, so he may be shaken out and emptied. This, we have evidence of this in, in the ancient Near Eastern culture. It would be, he took off his garment, and he went like this, and shook it. If you don't do what you just promised, may God shake out everything that you own. That is a graphic image. This is the value just took. The priests are a witness to it, but I'm telling you, there's someone else who's a witness to this. God. And if you don't do what you promised to do, 
God will hold you accountable. And as I just shook out my garment and shook out all the dust and the, the, the popcorn crumbs and the cookie crumbs that were on it, that's supposed to be a joke, but I don't know if you got it. So God will do this. And the assembly said, Amen. The Hebrew is Amen. Amen. Let it be so. That's what Amen means. Let it be so. So, uh, him, I was, uh, he had some deep pockets, huh? <laughs> Uh, he he was not. No, he was not. He was he was an, a man of nobility. His family had been, which perhaps is why he had that uh, responsibility in the court of Artaxerxes. But yes, that's right. He did. It's good, it's a good thing that he was mm-hmm. able to do that. Okay. So we're almost out of time, but can I just conclude with this? How did Nehemiah resolve this? He took the principles of Old Testament law as the leader applied it and insisted that everybody else follow God's commands on this. And they all fell in line. Yes. We will do it. But he also showed he followed it. I'm sorry? He also lived by example. Yeah, well, that's it. Yeah, that's it. I mean, in doing that, he said, my brothers and I follow the law. We are lending out money, but we're not charging interest. But you guys are not. So we're following the law. I'm leading by example. Guys, get in line. Just what you're supposed to do. This is amazing. This is an amazing act of leadership. And what you see Nehemiah doing, and he settled the crisis. This was devastating. This could have been devastating to the world. But he settled it. They returned all. The exploitation ended. Were they still loaning out money? Presumably, but not with interest. Not with the exorbitant rates of interest have been charging. So, I mean, this is, this is just an amazing example of somebody, I know what to do, God's law is clear, I'm going to take God's revelation, I'm going to bring everybody in line with God's revelation. And if you choose not to follow it, God's going to shake you out. <laughs> You're accountable to God for what you just promised to do. Great leader, isn't he? He's a great leader. That's one of the wonderful things. Now, we're getting, we're getting uh, further along in the book, so next week we'll get into chapter 6, because now what the enemies do, hey, we're not succeeding in this. So let's take care of Nehemiah. And this is a multifaceted conspiracy to get rid of Nehemiah. It's exciting. All right, I'm going to pray, and uh, then we're going to get out of here. Lord, thank you for this day of uh, regaining uh, our momentum in our class. Thank you for the book of Nehemiah. I, uh, it's one of my favorite books in the Old Testament, and I think it's one of the most germane, uh, relevant books for us here in 2020. Many of the guys in this class are leaders in their businesses. All of us, to one degree or another, are leaders in our home. And it's important that we learn, discern, and apply some of these leadership principles. Lord, you, uh, you call us to uh, be responsible men, to be men of faith, to be men who walk with you. And that means we take uh, very seriously what your word says. Help us to be men of integrity, men of steadfastness, men of faith, and men who are serious in their walk with you. 
We'll walk in loving obedience with you. We love you, Lord, for all that you've done for us in Jesus. May we represent you well in our thoughts and our deeds. The glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. See you next week.